Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 146. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And now, as Christmas and the end of the year finally approach, now is still very much a time to stay vigilant, especially if you're in my house. Because just in time for Christmas, my wife got COVID. Yep. My wife got COVID, so it's a COVID Christmas in the Rykoff house. Not exactly what we had planned, but just like every year of the pandemic, every year before and after, and as we've been doing throughout the existence of this show, we're going to try to make the most of it. We're going to adapt, improvise, and overcome, and my original plans for this show have gone out the window. More on that in a second, but... I am going to bring you a special holiday treat of one of my favorite interviews of all time on this show, an interview that we recorded two years ago this week with the great and powerful Jason Alexander, the man who created Festivus, the great George Costanza, the great actor, the great activist, and just a great guy. It was one of the best interviews we ever did, and I thought as the chaos continues and as the holidays hit, it would be a good time to go back and listen to one of our nicest, most insightful, most fun episodes of all time before the world got turned upside down. So here's the deal, folks. Last Friday was the last day of school for my kids. And we took my six-year-old down to the community center to get his second vaccine shot. He was scared and he cried before, during, and after but he was really brave and he stepped up. And in my view, he did it for you. He did it for himself and he did it for the world. And if you're an adult and you still refuse to do what my little boy did last week, then I think you're selfish or you're a coward or you're just ignorant. But either way, you're not helping. And my little boy, despite his fear, did his part. And this holiday, my wish, my Christmas wish, maybe it's a Christmas miracle, is that everybody in America would do the same because it didn't have to go like this. Three days after my son got his vaccination, my wife got her positive test. We went back to New York City to enjoy a little bit of Christmas, go see the Rockettes, go see Santa Claus, and my wife tested positive. And for a little while, we weren't sure if we were positive. So me and the two little boys rushed across New York City to try to find a test. And this experience has shown me how broken our country is right now. Me and two little kids under seven try to get a COVID test. And the line to get in was three blocks long, a half an hour before they even opened. We waited over an hour in the cold next to a construction site with a bunch of other families only to be given number 70 on the wait list when we got to the door. We didn't know if they'd call us back that day, if they'd call us back another day, or if they'd call us back at all. It took my wife two days to get a test. That was if they didn't run out, like they had done for the last three days. And nowhere in the entire area 
had any at-home tests. Every supermarket, every pharmacy, every other place was sold out. That's the situation in New York City right now. And it's going to be the situation in other places soon. America can send a rover to Mars, but we can't have enough tests for children? It's ridiculous and it's shameful. And if you're not angry, especially now, you're not paying attention. And if you're still sleeping on the Omicron variant, don't. It's tearing through New York right now. And if it's not doing the same where you are, it will be soon. Just like last time, but faster. So stay vigilant, friends. We're all in this together. And get the shot. My wife got both shots and the booster, and her symptoms have been relatively mild. Some flu-like symptoms, and she's already recovering. But it would have been much worse if she hadn't been vaccinated and if she hadn't been boosted. So yeah, it's not the Christmas we planned for. But despite the frustration and the agonizing stupidity of so many parts of our government and our politics, even in this moment, there have been some real bright spots. I posted a picture of the line the boys and I were waiting on on social media. And some folks gave us lots of positive reactions. A lot of folks giving my son high fives for getting vaccinated. And we got our share of nasty attacks, personal slander, and other nasty social media bots and sock puppets attacking me, trying to stir controversy and increase anger across America to have our enemies celebrating. But there was an outpouring of kind words, support, and texts from friends just to help me get a test for me and the kids. People who listen to this show offered to mail me a test from across the country and help out in lots of other ways. So many folks reached out to help. I'm sharing this with you now because it was a heartwarming reflection of how amazing so many people are. We finally got a call back and we ran in and got tested around 530 that day. It wasn't easy, but we finally got a rapid and a PCR and an all clear on the rapid. We're still waiting for the PCR. And it was good to hear that President Biden is finally announcing an acceleration of 500 million tests. We all need them. This new wave is real. After we got our test, I told my boys that the doctor helping us out was a hero. And he told me on the way out, thanks for saying that. We don't hear it much anymore. Well, you'll hear it from me. So a huge thank you to all the medical workers and all the first responders still out there right now on the front lines, still out there for yet another Christmas. You are all heroes. And my family, for one, is incredibly thankful. Thank you for all you do always, and especially right now. We're watching a lot of Mr. Rogers this week. We're watching a lot of stuff this week. But we're especially remembering that now is a time to look for the helpers. They're out there. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. They're on the front lines and they've joined us on this show from the beginning, especially folks like Dr. Paul Hazer, Dr. Vin Gupta, Jake Wood, and so many others that I hope you'll revisit over these holidays and get up to speed. Vin Gupta's show is especially useful where we dig into the Omicron variant and what you should do and how you can be prepared. But there is good news out there and there are helpers out there. And there's one more promising piece of information that's breaking this week. The U.S. Army has created a single vaccine effective against all COVID SARS variants. 
Yep. Fresh off of losing the Army-Navy game a couple weeks ago, Army is winning the bigger game. Within weeks, Walter Reed medical facility researchers expect to announce that human trials show success against Omicron and even future strains. So as a show that's focused on the military and its challenges and opportunities, this is a time where we're looking for the helpers. The helpers are coming in many forms and including in camouflage. So maybe in the new year, when we say look for the helpers, it'll be the army rolling in to help us. So this Christmas, wherever you are, whoever you are, I hope you're making the most of it. Whether you're in isolation, dealing with COVID, whether you're on the front lines of the pandemic, helping others, or if you're on a beach, just chilling out. Wherever you are, I hope you're making the most of this Christmas and you're continuing to adapt, improvise, and overcome. We're in for another rocky winter, but we're all in it together. And now more than ever, we've got to stay vigilant because vigilance is the price of democracy. And it's a price we're going to have to pay even on Christmas. So thanks for all the support this year. I hope you have a very, very happy holiday, a Merry Christmas. We'll be back with a special episode next week to end the year strong. And now I'm happy to share with you a very special Christmas and Festivus present. My interview with the great and powerful Jason Alexander. The iconic actor who played George Costanza on Seinfeld is here to tell us the true founding story of Festivus. He's also going to share amazing stories from an incredible life of laughs, lessons, and activism. You'll get a special Christmas present. You'll meet the man behind the character you know so well. And you'll hear Jason explain what it's been like to live life in a world where everybody thinks he's really George Costanza. And you'll also hear about almost 40 years of entertaining America, from Cheetah Rivera to Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts to voiceover work on Dora the Explorer and a video with Nickelback. Jason won a Tony and is known worldwide, but he's also an activist, a patriot, a father, and one of the most entertaining, insightful, and inspiring American success stories you'll ever hear. And yes, even Jason Alexander gets angry at times, but this candid, extended, fun conversation will bring you hope and happiness this holiday season. Merry Christmas, everybody. Stay vigilant. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Festivus. We have an incredibly special guest today joining us that I am absolutely thrilled to have on the mic with us, the great and powerful Jason Alexander. Oh, is wow, here like Oz. You gave me the Oz introduction. You That's des- fantastic. You, you deserve it. God bless. You know, Oz was a total sham. You remember that, of course. (laughs) I I do, but you're also, you're this mysterious and powerful voice. Sure. And behind curtains, often. I've never, I've never had anyone describe me as either mysterious or powerful. You are really elevating me to a place that I have no business going. I think entirely appropriately. (laughs) I mean, so every interview we do is with an iconic, important, inspiring American. Uh-huh. And you check all those boxes in a huge way. And well, you're very kind. Delusional, I, but kind. That might be. It might be. I mean, we're <laughs> now 38 I don't episodes even think I in. qualify for that in my own home. No, but, you yeah. absolutely do. Because, I mean, you know, I do research in advance of every 
interview, every conversation. I prefer to call them conversations sure. rather than interviews. And just looking at how many different things you've done is extraordinary. It really, really is. Yeah. But before we go too far into that, sure. we were talking before we got here. When you and I first met, I think it was like over a decade ago. Easily. In Los Angeles, we were there for an event that was benefiting IAVA, the mm -hmm. veterans group that I ran, and you right. were there. I think Jerry Seinfeld may have been there also. I'm familiar with him. Yes, it's possible. And I and and basically it was a it was a uh, it was a, a corporate event for a piece of technology that is now obsolete. Right. <laughs> That's how long <laughs> I've been doing this. And it, but it was a handheld piece of technology, yeah. and the company did. Uh, they it had a stylus. It did right. And we were, but we met there, and it was it was a strange and beautiful event. In that you know they brought in some celebrities and they brought in some veterans, and it rained in Los Angeles, and we were outside, and and I got to meet you, and we hung out. We and did. I said, if I can be helpful, let me know. And then we, we've sort of danced around each other ever since. That's right. And yeah. you've been very generous in uh, your support for me and for IAVA and for many causes. And, oh, and I want to get into that. But it was also one of those events, I've, you know, you must have had kind of a Forrest Gump life where you wake up at times, you're like, how did I get at this spot? Oh, yeah. Right? And that yeah. was one of those moments where I'm in the rain in LA. It was still kind of early in my activism. And I'm hanging out with you. And I'm just like, where the fuck am I? Yeah, I, I go through life like that. I always <laughs> find myself in rooms going, they're going to turn around any minute now and go, excuse me, sir, you, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, I, I'm always the little, you know, Jewish kid from New Jersey. I don't know how I stumbled into the life that I've become a part of. It, it's, and I never, I never quite feel like I'm supposed to be there. Um, I, I, like oh, Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was um, uh, inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. I wanted to ask you about that because I and, watched it. And they said, you know, we'd really love a celebrity to do the uh, inducting. And I went, well, you're, you're shit out of luck because I'm not really friendly with those people. They go, Jerry? I go, yeah, we're not really friends. I, I, you know, and also, he's not going to Jersey to right. do this for me. So... Um, Brian, William, Brian Williams and Bon Jovi were unavailable. They were unavailable. <laughs> Springsteen, you know, yeah. an asshole. He was supposed to, you know. <laughs> and Chris Christie's not a real celebrity. Well, and we went to the same high school. You did? Yeah. I didn't know him. He's At the same years, time? But no, no, he was behind me, years behind me. But was was I have to take that off ramp and talk about that. Was, yeah. was there a legend of Chris Christie in your high school? No, uh, I was unaware of him back then. Uh, like I said, I think he, I, I was probably uh, an exiting senior as he was coming in as a freshman. Um but I, I may have I may have known his name. I grew up mostly. I did high school in Livingston, New Jersey, and Livingston was like a sixty percent Italian, forty percent Jewish community. And it, for some reason, it, it it had a fair amount of retired mafia folk there. So you just didn't screw around with the Italian kids because you never knew who was a made man. You know, he's just <laughs> and uh, and Chris used to you know kind of hang with those kids from what I understand. So was he like running around pushing people in lockers? Or I have, what was he I, doing? I don't know. I know he was on the football team and we had we when I was there we were the I think we were the number one football team in the state. But he's a Cowboys fan. Yeah, I, who knows? Which is so fucked up. Like who 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 can be self-respecting from... he's wise. Right. Just, just because true. he went to my school true, doesn't true, mean he True, true. You don't you don't claim him, I think, any more than New Jersey does lately. That's why he's hanging out with Jerry Jones at exactly. Cowboys games, right? Yeah, exactly. But but you're at the New Jersey Hall of Fame. Yeah. Being inducted. Sure. I mean, I, I think looking from the outside, part of why you've been so successful is because you don't take for granted that you should be there. You seem to be, I, and I don't take it seriously. Yeah. I, I find it very hard to take this stuff seriously. I remember when you know the the eight times I've lost the Emmy award, but every time I was in the room, I go, 
wow, somebody really messed up. I mean, <laughs> it just yeah. it just doesn't feel because none of this was what I fantasized about when I was a kid. When I knew I wanted to be an actor, which happened around when I was twelve or thirteen years old, but my fantasy was all about trying somehow to get to New York City and work on Broadway. Well, you don't have have any fantasies of celebrity and glitter and tinsel when you when that's your goal, and so. Uh, everything else that happened is just, it wasn't even in my imagination. So I just, I used to watch that stuff on TV and go, oh, that's just silly. That's silliness. That's not real showbiz. And, yeah. and you told, when you during your induction, I guess it's an induction, yeah. right? Um, you talked about some of your favorite things about New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. Which was so authentic. Yeah. It was so real. Yeah. You talked about Seaside Heights. Yeah. And you talked about so many things. Like, I grew up in New York, but I would go to the Jersey Shore. You know, that Everybody was like did. an exotic locale for us yeah. was New Jersey. Sure. was to go down to the white. I remember being, I think, 16 or 17 and being old enough to drive. And the guys were like, where are we going to go? Jersey Shore. Yeah. We're going to Jersey Shore. Absolutely. It was like that or Atlantic City. The- and you always knew the guys that grew up in New Jersey because the phrase would be down the shore. Down, down the show. Let's go down the show. Down the show. And that was, oh yeah, you're from Jersey. <laughs> I, I was not that aware. Like that was like the extent of my distance of, 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 of travel at that point in my life when I was, when I was 16. But you did, you know, to come full circle, Jason, you won a Tony. I did. And that was actually a bit of a mind blower because that was, when I was a kid, that was the ultimate thing. I thought, oh, if I get to Broadway, like maybe I'll be 30, 40, something like that boy, wouldn't it be great if by the time I'm ready to end my career, I did something that would win a Tony Award? Because I thought that was that was the thing. And I got it when I was 29. And it kind of messed me up a little bit because yeah. I went, wow, I don't know what to dream about anymore. It also, I talk about this sometimes with student actors. It it The fantasy was you would get that thing, which would mark somewhere you had gotten to in life, and everything would change. You would know what success is. You'd know what happiness is. You'd know, you would just be a different person. And I went to bed that night with my wife and she said, how do you feel? And I quoted her a line from the musical Pippin and she knew exactly what I was talking about. So Pippin is basically a story about a young man who feels that he's got extraordinary gifts and he doesn't, he doesn't know where to put them. And so th- this band of players lead him through politics and war and love and Rome and all these things to try on. And at the end of the war section, the the leading player says to him, how do you feel? And he says, I thought there'd be more plumes. And I got in bed with my wife that night. She said, how do you feel? And I said, I, I thought there'd be more plumes. <laughs> so it didn't change you. And it wasn't everything. It was great. I would have been really unhappy had it not come my way. But it also, I was the same guy. And the world was exactly the same as it was the minute before I, they handed me the thing. And, and it was a big life lesson. And it's not like hitting the lottery, right? Because Broadway, no. my wife has worked in entertainment for decades and and i've kind of learned what makes people money and what people doesn't and what doesn't yeah right and and stage is is so much for the love yeah you know right? i mean you can make a, a a good living in the theater in new york but it, it also necessitates most of the time that you live in new york yeah. which which wipes out the kind of money that you can make on broadway it, to live in new york city these days you need to make an extraordinary income and there are not really extraordinary incomes in New York. You, you can, you can make a decent living doing eight a week, but it's not, it's by no means glamorous. From the outside, I really view Jason as a great American success story. You know, a guy who came from humble roots, who worked his ass off, who had dreams, got to a really 
uh, impactful place and has used that platform now in a lot of powerful ways as best you can to, to help other people. But you've been, it looks like you've been grinding, right? And, and I, w- I was hoping you could share what it's like, uh, you know, looking back in your earlier days when you're in your 20s and you were struggling to crank it out, right? Mm-hmm. And, to, and to grit through it. You, you mentioned Broadway. I was looking back on um, a part in Seinfeld where you have this romance with Marissa Tomei. Mm-hmm. And Marissa's a friend. I've been lucky enough and honored enough to know yeah. her. And she just finished a run on Broadway doing the Rose Tattoo. Right. And she's cranking. Like, that is a hard yeah. job. I mean, it's a great job, right? I mean, I'm sure none of you would complain. But the physical demands, the emotional demands of, of doing it over mm-hmm. and over again for a really intense period of time. What, what is that like? And, and what did you learn? Like, going back to your Jersey roots, Right. What did you learn about the work ethic part of the job that probably transcends your, yeah. your craft? I, so the the cool thing is, is that my Broadway career was defined by the first two shows that I did. Um, and the first one was a unbelievably important, um, historic flop. Um, it was a, a, a musical called Merrily We Roll Along. And it was historic because it was the the team that created it was the same team that created Company, which was sure. changed the Broadway theater. So it's Stephen Sondheim, Harold Prince, and George Firth, and it was their first collaboration together again since Company, um, a, a musical based on the Kaufman and Hart play. Well, Kaufman and Hart are theater royalty. These guys are theater, you know, gods. And I become a part of this thing, and I watch them not be able to get there. I watched them not succeed. And it was an unbelievable education because of how hard they had to work. Had it all gone smoothly and been a huge success, I would have learned less than if I saw them struggle and fail. And it, it taught me many things. It taught me about work ethic because they kept coming at it and coming at it, chucking out an old idea, radically trying a new idea. Um, and the fact that these these guys who were more successful, they were successful beyond anyone's dreams in the theater. Every time they got up to do it, it it didn't matter how good the last one was. You're only as good as the one you're working on. So that was great. And then the next Broadway show I did was a thing called The Rink. Also a small musical. Um, and it had two extraordinarily big female stars, Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli. And it was Cheetah's work ethic and Cheetah's ego in the business that made me go, okay, when I grow up, I would like to be Cheetah Rivera Mm -hmm. because she worked every day like a dog. I mean, she had to carry that show. The show was written by Kander and Ebb to win her a Tony award, which it did do, but it was her show. And then they cast Liza Minnelli Mm -hmm. and the story became Liza Minnelli Mm -hmm. and Cheetah loved her supported her. Liza got very ill during that. She went into Betty Ford during our Mm -hmm. run. But Cheetah's support of her and love of her and care for her and care for everybody else in that show. There's a story I always tell about who Cheetah Rivera is. So there was a policy where if Liza missed a performance, the audience could get a refund. Uh, They didn't have to stay. And there was one performance that Liza was out. And I guess the stage manager went to Cheetah Rivera and said... 
Cheetah, I mean, it's totally up to you, but there's, there's maybe a hundred people in the audience. I mean, it's really mm. an empty house. And Cheetah, the first thing she said was, because there were six men, six of us in the show. She said, if we don't do this performance, will the boys lose an eighth of their salary? And they said, yeah, if we don't do the show, yeah. So she called us into her dressing room and said, here's the situation. There's a hundred people out there. You know, what if you want to do it, let's do it. I don't want you guys to lose any money. And Liza has an understudy and we'll make it like a big rehearsal for her understudy. You know, it'd be a nice opportunity for her. And we'll go out and we'll have fun and we'll be silly about it, you know, because it's ridiculous doing a Broadway show for a hundred people. Yeah. And we all said, oh, so that alone would have been enough to just go, oh my God, she's amazing. Her first thought is about her six little. But then she said to us, and while we're having a great time, just remember, guys, the hundred people that stayed, stayed. Give them the show. Don't, don't do something to their expense. They want to see our show. Give them our show. And I went, oh my God, that is what a professional thinks. Yeah. That's how they act. And she became my role model. So the work ethic that I've tried to maintain, how I treat people that I work with and how I think about my responsibility to the people that hire me and the people that come to see me is pretty much based on what I saw those guys in Merrily and, and, and she to do. And I that grew from that. What an incredible gift oh, to amazing. be around her. Amazing. And to have that kind of mentorship and the example of her uh, leadership, amazing. right? Yeah. And it's such an, a, a, a groundbreaking time, right? And I was 24 when we did that show. So it was really, I, I was right at that place where I could really absorb and learn and see. And I was learning how to be a, a working professional, you know? Wow. And you, so you've been, you know, kind of the ultimate example of, of an artist, I think, who goes uptown, downtown, everywhere in between, right? From the biggest television show maybe of all time, right? <laughs> sure. To small plays and yeah, still giving back to your community and remembering your roots of where you sure. came from in New Jersey and the Jersey Shore and the food you ate and the people you knew and the high school you went to. But Jason Alexander, when you were growing up, what was your first car? So it wasn't my first car. It was the first car I was allowed to drive around. And my dad went through cars like shit through a goose, but he had, <laughs> he loved this. I think, well, so I started driving in 1976, 77. It must've been like a 1972 Chevy Impala. And that was the car he allowed me to drive. It was like this turd brown Chevy Impala. I have some memory of some sort of fin-like Tail, tail light thing. Yeah. And my dad had a funny habit and I, I've always loved it. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll adopt that someday. But my dad would, um, let's tell you everything you need to know about my dad. So he'd buy a new car and he'd call all his friends and go, stand outside your house. I'm driving by. I want you to see the car. And he'd drive around and he'd show off his brand new car to all his friends. Then he'd bring it home. He'd take a ball peen hammer. He'd look for a spot, not too obvious, but not too hidden and put a ding in it. And he'd go, all right, curses off, curses off. Wow. And now if he was in a parking lot in the mall and somebody hit him, he was like, eh, I was already dinged. So, wow. <laughs> so he just, he did not want it to be precious beyond that first day. Wow. And, uh, and so that's my relationship with cars. I really <laughs> give a crap about them. They just get me from here to there. Jerry, wow. Jerry Seinfeld, late in our run, 
would always make fun of me because I always had crappy cars. I mean, I just, I've never owned a, you know, a luxury car. And he said, I'm going to get you a Porsche. I'm going to get you a Porsche. <laughs> and I said, please don't. You'd you be throwing your money away. You want to give me the money? I'll yeah, take the, yeah, I'll take yeah, the cash yeah, yeah, gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please don't buy me a Porsche because A, I won't know how to drive it. I can't drive a stick. You will only buy a stick because he only drives cars that you really drive. And, um, uh, so they just they don't mean so he didn't buy you the car he did not so was there ever a discussion I feel like this could be an entire Seinfeld episode was there a discussion between you and Jerry about whether or not it's Porsche or Porsche you're, uh, you're a man I may be saying it wrong I don't know for some I reason asked, I, 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 now he's gonna watch I'll get an email going you idiot I, I never said <laughs> I don't that. know I'm asking um, I, I, my memories he said Porsche but I could be wrong he certainly, he would know. He would know. Because he has a whole shit ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So you you have, um, you know, had this extraordinary career, Jason, where you've also, you know, flexed so many, you're, you're, you're the, I, in my view, kind of the ultimate multi-sport athlete. <laughs> you, you've done uh, feature movies, you've done sitcoms, you've done stage, you've done a ton of work on voiceover. Right, like incredible yeah, animation, animation, voice, voice work, which yeah, is really, yeah. really extraordinary. And so there's, I think, a sense that um, you're you've been everywhere. You're part of our life. Like I don't remember a life in America without your presence. <laughs> and really, right? My, well, bless your heart. My, you're my, young. <laughs> my wife, well, and my wife will always remember you as the guy who was the asshole in Pretty Woman. Yeah. Well, right? Yeah, a lot of women uh, and have, have hold that <laughs> image of That's me. difficult, right? Yeah. It was a it was a tricky year when that movie came out because I was was it? fairly uh, as a national presence. I mean, you might have seen me on a commercial, but you wouldn't have known my name. And Seinfeld didn't happen before that. So suddenly, I'm in this phenomena movie, and I'm you know the guy that tried to rape Julia Roberts, right? And women, I would walk down the streets of New York, and I could see what I called the the pretty woman stare. A woman would spot me from a half a block away and the fire in her eyes would burn into my head. And many is the time I, a lady would come up to me and say, I don't like you. And oh I, I had one woman come up and hit me. I had a woman spit at me. And I just went, yeah, I, listen, I swear to you, never touched her. It's <laughs> it's all movie magic, you know, where it looks like I hit her. I missed by six inches, you know. Wow. Um, but it was, nobody knew me. So right. they just thought, he really is a jerk. That, right. that man is really a bad man. But but a testament to your acting It was a chops. testament, I guess, to acting. It was also yeah. to Gary Marshall's editing. Because <laughs> Gary, and I tell the story all the time, Gary Marshall was making that movie on the fly. That movie on paper was substantially different from the movie everybody sees. And Gary made it up in his head. And so we did multiple takes of things so many different ways that my character could have come off completely silly, lightweight, buffoon, um, you know, just a guy you never take seriously, not a threat. Uh, I think we did one take of that scene with Julia where I, I went to put a hand on her leg and then she beats the hell out of me. He thought mm. that might be an interesting mm. variation. So he created the final impression in the editing room and, and he made me a, a bit of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But you know, now then you evolve into lovable characters, compelling characters, familiar characters, but you also have um, been an advocate. You, I met you because you care about causes and you've been active in um, the Middle East 
Beast yeah. endeavors, right? Yeah. And I, I would love to give you an opportunity. Solved it, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But you worked with a group called One Voice, mm -hmm. and then you've been an advocate um, for a relatively little known is it skin disease? Is that how? You, is it? It's can actually you, can an you talk about that, please? Yeah. Can you please ex yeah. explain if you can how you got into those pieces of activism? And it's much more than that. Sure. Well, scleroderma but, was a, was a road I, I would have been happy to avoid. Um, I, I have uh, half siblings. My, my my dad was a widower and had two children with his first wife. And then uh, I met my mother and I'm, I'm my mother's only child. So my half siblings, uh, my brother was 20 years older than me. And my sister was 12 years older than me. And my sister's mother, my dad's first wife uh, died of scleroderma. And unfortunately my sister inherited the gene for it. Right. So scleroderma is still a fairly little known. I mean, it's not, it's not on the tip of anybody's tongue, including right. the medical profession. But scleroderma is an autoimmune uh, disease in the same world as, as lupus. And when you get it, what it does is it makes your body overproduce collagen. Uh, and, you know, collagen, you hear about it in, in cosmetic products all the time. A little bit of it is a really good thing. It tightens the skin and kind of gets rid of wrinkles and whatnot. When you overproduce it, um, a lot of patients that have scleroderma almost look mummified. They, it has stretched their skin so much that they oftentimes can't close their mouths. They can't quite close their eyes. They can't use their joints because the skin has become so taut around the joints that, that it has disabled the joints. So externally, it's, it's not easy to deal with. But the, the devastating parts are that collagen can collect in any part of your vital system or vital organ. If it gets into your heart, if it gets into your lungs, if it gets into your liver, it's a death sentence. For my sister, lived with it for a very long time. She was diagnosed with it somewhere in her 30s, and she lived to almost 65 before she passed away uh, about four or five years ago. Um, and for, for Karen, it was in her digestive system. So she absorbed maybe a tenth of the nutrition that she needed from food, and eventually it, it eradicated her digestive system altogether. Um, there is no cure for it. Uh, even treating it, you know, with some sort of just symptom by symptom, there's some things that they can do that are helpful, but largely you you suffer through it. Um, when my sister got it, there were some scattered small organizations. There was a support organization. There was a research organization, um, and their biggest obstacle was that nobody was really aware of this disease. So my sister came to me and she said, would you ever be willing to, you know, try and be part of the awareness program? And I said, you're really asking the wrong person. It's not what I be willing. It's would you be willing? Mm. Because the story is going to be you. Right. So you've got to be willing to get out there. Now, my sister didn't have a lot of the external. Uh, if you looked at her, she didn't look like a, a scleroderma patient. She didn't have that, that um, the, the deformities that it can cause. But I said, you're going to have to get out of there and talk about your life and you're going to have to talk about the disease and you're going to have to talk about what's horrible about it. And, you know, she was a pretty private person. And so that was a very bonding experience. She made the commitment to do that and we got out there and, and we certainly, Bob Saget also lost a sister to, to scleroderma. So he's been a major advocate and he and I have crossed paths on it many times. But, um, you know, unfortunately, the awareness of it is much greater. And I think we've, we've probably enabled... Um, support foundations for, for people and families that are working through it. 
Uh, and that's great, but I, I don't think we've managed to secure much more by way of funding, and we certainly have not gotten any closer to a cure. The cure is probably a genetic one when, when they mm. isolate the right mm. gene and are able to address it that way. But This is in part why I wanted to ask you about it, because I didn't know about scleroderma yeah. until I was preparing for this and reading about your activism and, and learning about it. And I'm in the activist world. Yeah. I'm in, you know, most of the medical stuff causes I've seen. Right. And you personally are putting this mm. on the map in a very powerful and personal and important way. Yeah. And I think that, yeah. that that's part of why I was excited to talk to you is because I think you're, you know, you've been kind of below the radar making a difference and using your platform to, to make a real difference on a cause that I honestly, and many others, people li listening to this podcast right now probably never heard of that before. And well, will it's forever also, be changed by it. You know, one of the reasons I think people are unaware of it is because it, it predominantly affects women. 80% of the people affected are, are female and it is disfiguring. So they, they stay in the shadows. Right. They, they are frightened or embarrassed to come out, many of them. And so that also kind of kept it a dirty little secret and, mm -hmm. and didn't get any attention for it. So, yeah, I, 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 I actually tip my hat to Bob Saget because I think he's been even more visible than I am. I, Bob, I went to Washington once, you know, to do a, a panel on it, but Bob's been back and forth several times and, mm -hmm. um, but at least it has it has some faces now, which is great. Yeah, and it, and it's it's made it's made an impact, I know for sure. And so, how did you also get thrust into or thrust yourself into? Because um, you don't have an, enough going on in your life, you decided to tackle Middle East peace, yeah. right, and be involved in what's happening in Israel and Palestine and the surrounding areas. And, yeah. and I thought your viewpoint was really smart and thoughtful and reasonable. Um, but can you talk about that a bit, please? Yeah. Jason? So the organization you're talking about is called One Voice. It was, it was, um, at least this is the facts as I'm aware of them. It was created by um, a, a fellow named Daniel Lebetsky and uh, uh, an Israeli Arab by the name of Mohammed Dawarsha. And they had been business partners. And, and Danny had a business. What Danny is famous for now, if you watch Shark Tank, he's been a guest shark. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Danny is the founder and CEO of Kind, the Kind Bars right, and the yeah. Kind products. Yeah, fantastic. Story. Kind has a philosophy that is a continuation of a company that Danny founded uh, called PeaceWorks. And it's a little bit like Seeds of Peace, where he would take peoples that are in conflict and he would take a product from one and a product from another and make a new product and say, now you're in business together. Right. So he was building bridges through through business ventures, basically. Kind has a similar, uh, uh, if not exactly the same mandate. But through his work, Danny is a, um, a Mexican-born Jewish guy. Um, Muhammad was a, an Israeli Arab. And they did a lot of work in, the, in Israel and the Middle East. And this was back in the early 90s. Um, and they had an amazing idea based on their observation of working within Palestinian and Israeli communities. They said, you know, this whole failure to find a solution here, it's not a people problem because most of the people they were dealing with on both sides were moderates who all kind of knew in the back of their heads that this was going to finally end up in a two-state solution of some kind. And if you talked to them about the, the, the 10 sort of main issues that needed to be negotiated— they all kind of went, you know, one of the big sticking points was, well, it's going to divide Jerusalem. How can Jerusalem be a divided city and survive? And you go, 
Well, it already is. It's been that way. It, it, it's a <laughs> it's functioning city, and we yeah. everybody kind of knows East Jerusalem is right. Palestinian, West Jerusalem is Israeli, and the Jews have the the Wailing Wall, and the Muslims have the yeah. Dome of the Rock, and we and they figured it out. It it's was like just neighbor, a it's like neighborhoods solution. in Brooklyn. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it feels less divided so, than some neighborhoods in Brooklyn. <laughs> that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So. By talking to the citizens, they said, boy, you know, if it weren't up to the leaders, we could get this done. And their idea was to create a platform where you could quantify a voting system among the populations where they would essentially negotiate their own terms of the settlement. And then once done, excuse me, they could take it to the leadership on both sides and go, look, do this. We will back it. We'll vote for it. And you'll be fine. Um. I was introduced to these guys at uh, Danny DeVito and Rio Perlman's house. They're they're very, very big philanthropists. And they had these guys in and they were telling their story. And it was really Muhammad that got me because Muhammad was telling the story of his older son, Fadi. I believe his name was Fadi. And Fadi was 12 years old and he had come to his dad and said, hey, dad, remember where I told you um, I was really bad in math and I said I was going to be the, the first in my class you know, first greatest math student in class. And I worked and worked and I did it, right, Dad? And he said, yes, you did, Fadi, that's great. And he said, remember, I was I was really a bad soccer player and I said, I'm going to be the captain of the team and I worked and I worked and I became the captain of the soccer team. And he said, yes, I'm very proud of you, Fadi, you did. He came to him and he said, Dad, I'm going to be a martyr. And it was at that point, as Muhammad told this story, that he wow. turned to us in the audience and said, I need your help because this needs to be a promise my son doesn't keep. And I have to convince him that there's another way. And my kids were very young at the time. And I just, as a father to a father, I I melted. And I just went, look, I don't know what I can offer you guys, but whatever you think it is, be it money or anything else, let me know and I'll I'll try and do it. And they said, honestly, what we need is we we need you to come to the Middle East. They said Seinfeld is huge in Israel, and it is. It right. is. It is huge. Apparently, it's also huge in Palestine. I believe Don't figure it. Figure that out. I believe it. Um, <clears throat> and they said if you would come, peace initiatives were like Kleenex in the Middle East. Everybody had one, and they kept throwing them away. You couldn't get a press. You couldn't get journalists to come and cover anything. They said if you would come, it would put real attention on what we're trying to do. So I went uh, three or four times on behalf of One Voice. Uh, to go over and and meet with the Israeli members of the board and the Palestinian members of the board and attend press events. What I liked about it, what I really appreciated, is it was never to give my opinion. It was never to weigh in on how this should be resolved. It was merely, I was the carrot. I would say, thank you for coming. I think my friends here are engaged in really important work and have something you should hear. And then I would turn it over. Mm. And I thought, that's how you use a celebrity. That's really what it's for. You to bring some attention to it and then not pretend to be an expert, not pontificate, get out of the way and say, I believe in these guys. I just wanted to introduce you to them. And it in one voice really, I thought, was on its way to making a huge difference. The problem is when I started with them. There was a real hope in the air on both sides. Um, the moderates would always say, I didn't, I didn't think there'd be anybody to negotiate with on the other side, but I guess there is. Ten years after I started with One Voice, because of the leadership on both sides, right. all, that, all that hope uh, has faded. 
I, I think we are further from it now than we've ever been. There's so much power in that, Jason. I thank you for, for sharing. I need to take a minute to kind of sure. digest it. Um, and I think folks who are listening to it probably feel it resonating with what's happening at home too, right? We talk a lot in this show about the power of the moderates, the independents. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean neutral, right? Right, And it doesn't mean at all apathetic. Often it means the opposite. People who really do believe in their country ahead of their party. People right. who care about the world more than about themselves and have the long-term vision. But we see now... I mean, I, I have, you know, Israeli friends, I have Palestinian friends. And recently I was with a friend, I said, man, what's more fucked up right now, Israeli politics or American politics, right? I mean, the corruption in Israel, Absolutely. the dysfunction, the, the extremes, right? And, and this has happened in so many other parts of the world. It's Hungary and it's, and it's Venezuela and it's yeah. other parts, right? So this, this emergence of the radical edges dominating the conversation and inflaming the conversation and blowing up peace, Absolutely. right? Whether it's NATO or, um, you know, a, a, an infrastructure deal back home. I mean, everything is getting blown up. So you have become, I think it sounds like, increasingly vocal about the situation in America and, and critical. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because you are a bridge builder. Like your role, especially because of Seinfeld, you're trusted. And, and I think it's a time when some folks will say, you know, to athletes, you know, shut up and dribble or shut up and play or, or to actors, you know, shut up and be on my screen. Yeah. But I think now more than ever, there's an important role for voices like yours to play in bringing, if only the carrot, right? And bringing moderation and yeah. also bringing perspective because you've been around the world. You've seen the opportunities and the costs of how to do things, the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things and the right way to treat people and the wrong way to treat people. So to bring that back, to the U.S. and globally, the question I ask of, of all guests, Jason Alexander, what makes you angry? Well, we're on it. Um, you know, I, I, I thankfully, through years of therapy, are no longer, um, I don't get ruffled by the little indignities or injustices in life. It's, it's big things. So for me, what is consuming me right now and that I don't understand is the moral vacuum that we suddenly seem to be living in. I don't, so for the audience, I I am, anybody would probably categorize me as a democratic progressive thinker. But having said that, I will be the first one to go to bat and say, if we ever truly lost the conservative voice in this country, I would fear for our country. I think the greatest strength that America has is the diversity of not only cultures and races, but of experiences and thinking from left and right. And what it enables us to do that a a more homogenous society can't do is we come at challenges and issues and problems from so many different angles that when we make solutions they tend to be profound solutions. They tend to be solutions that stick and that really move, as, as the United States has been an example for the world, moves the world forward in a leadership way. And I think it's because of this internal struggle of our ideas. So to lose those conservative values and those conservative voices, to me, is a tragic loss. And I'm angry because we're losing the conservative values. Excuse me, I'm getting all choked up. It, it's not 
you know, and both sides have their flaws. I'll be the first one to laugh my ass off at, at conservatives, uh, sorry, at, at liberals and progressives and Democrats. We are as dysfunctional and fucked up as anybody else. But we know where our moral core is right now. Our moral core is not in question. I don't understand where the conservative side is right now. I don't understand Lindsey Graham right now. I don't understand Mitch McConnell right now. I don't understand a party that stood for fiscal, you know, fiscal conservatism, that stood for, um, for lack of a better word, Judeo-Christian ethics to the max. That was the law and order party. That was the party of a sort of almost you know, nun-like <laughs> discipline and adherence to ethics right? that rightfully and willfully stood up and went, we're going to impeach President Clinton because he lied about a sex act, which was not a crime, but his lying about it was a crime. And as much as I go, come on, that's what you're going to impeach the guy for? He didn't want to admit that he did something morally wrong in his marriage and you backed him into a corner. And because he, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to admit it. That's his high crime and misdemeanor for which you're going to impeach him. But if I'm going to be intellectually and morally honest, I go, you lied under oath. Right. You lied under oath. And if they want to push that, then you have to be held accountable for it. Well, how do you look at what's going on in this administration where the stakes are so much higher? If he, if, let's say if, if he is guilty and if his administration is guilty of the things that they are being charged for, they are trashing our constitution, trashing our democracy, trashing our standing in the world, trashing science, which means you're trashing our future. And trashing certainly half, if not three quarters of the people that make up this country. And this party is going to stand up and look the other way and justify it. And mm. I, I don't understand that. Mm. I don't understand why they don't en masse turn to each other and go, okay, look, let's just do this. Trump's out. Romney, stand up guy. He believes in everything we believe in. He wouldn't necessarily change one policy that Trump stands for or any of the values that we're going for. Let's get someone that America can, you know, look up to. Mm -hmm. I look at Mitt Romney. Mm -hmm. I go, if I got President Romney. I got no problems. I don't mm -hmm. agree with half of what he believes in. Right. But I believe in him. I think he's a decent guy. I think he will do things with intelligence and with morality and, and with a soul. I don't understand how they continue to back this freak show. But there, and thank you for that. I really, <laughs> no, I think there's really a lot of powerful insight in the way you're breaking it down. And I, I was so excited. Look, I wanted to hear you talk about Pretty Woman and Seinfeld, but I really want to hear you talk about Trump. <laughs> I do. And I think a lot, because I, I know you from afar and, and I really appreciate your insight and your, your intelligence and your sophistication, but you understand in a very deep level, this country, like the fabric of this country. I mean, th there is a reason why Seinfeld is popular everywhere. I mean, if Seinfeld was our representation to the world instead of Donald Trump, we'd be in a whole lot better place right now. Seemingly. Right. Yeah. Um, but in, in my view, when I see the Lindsey Grahams and the others of the world, I do understand it. It's actually not hard for me to understand. Yeah. I think they're either scared. Um, they're, they're, they're going to benefit um, or they're ignorant 
mm-hmm. right? So many of them are complicit. So many of them are just making a calculation. Sure. They're afraid he might win. Yeah. Right. And that's the same way fascist dictators and authoritarians rise around the world. You either think, you know, you say to yourself, a lot of people are going to get screwed, but I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And if everybody's getting screwed, I got to protect my own ass. And that's what I see in many of them right now, whether it's politically, you know, ethically, financially, um, there's still a lot of calculations going on right now, right? They don't want to be on the wrong side of this guy right. and they're placing their bets, yeah. right? And every day they're, they're watching the odds in Vegas. And right now it looks like he probably will get reelected. He may get reelected. Who knows? Right. But that's what I see. But I think your, your, your focus on the death of conservatism in this country is one of the most underreported stories. I think, you know, I view tragic, you know, John McCain, the ghost of John McCain, is, is lost right now, right? And guys like mm-hmm. Romney and others who could have inherited it are, are gone now, right? Yeah. George Bush Sr. is gone now and there's this vacuum and chaos where bad actors and, and scoundrels are kind of overtaking the, the narrative and mm-hmm. they've got their hands on the steering wheel. Absolutely. And are destroying our, our Impala and our beautiful car. They are. In so many different ways. And here's the thing that really kills me. So my, my real foray into political activism was a little bit of an accident. When Obama was running the first time, I, I must have said something, you know, very uh, supportive of him. And I got a call from the campaign and said, would you be one of our, um, a celebrity, uh, what do they uh, call it? Uh, not an advocate, but a... Um, like a surrogate? A surrogate, yep. that's right. Yep. And I said, well, what does the surrogate do? And they say, honestly, you just go around to where our campaign offices are and you're a treat for our supporters and our workers. You just go and you thank them and you cheerlead. And I go, yeah. great, I'd love to do that. That's terrific, I'd love to do that. So I go out and I'm I'm going from state to state and city to city doing exactly that. And one of the events was at a restaurant in West Palm Beach, Florida. And it was supposed to be just exactly that. It was all his campaign workers uh, came to that restaurant, but it was a public venue. It wasn't the campaign office. Mm-hmm. And some tea partiers must have found out that that was happening and they came and they hit this event and they disrupted the event. And the Obama people started to hustle me away. I said, if you do that, you know, there's some news cameras here. It's just going to look like you're turning tail. Right. I said, I have no problem talking to them. And they go, well, you know, we don't want you doing policy or the, I, I said, no, 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 no. I won't do that. I think I can, I think I can talk to them. <laughs> yeah. So I go over and, um, there was one woman in particular who was particularly aggressive. She didn't like this whole thing that I was using my status as a celebrity to advocate politically. And I said, well, I understand that, but you know, I'm also, I am just a citizen and we all have, you know, we all, you're not the secretary of labor. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I said, and you know, and she's really emotional. And I said, you know, ma'am, I have to say the irony here is I, I think if we just talk to each other, we would agree on more things than we disagree on. And she goes, no, we don't, no, we don't adamant. And I said, I, I really think we would. And I said, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you're a betting woman. I'll make you bet. And I, I took some money out of my wallet and I said, here's the, here's the deal. You name the issue. You, you get to pick the issue. You express your point of view. I'll express mine. And then you get to be the judge. You will decide if we agree more than we disagree. If you decide we disagree more, this money is yours. You do whatever you want with it. If you decide we agree, I don't care what you take out of your wallet, but take something out and go give it to the Obama people. <laughs> so she, of course, jumps on this offer. Yeah. She's, there's no way she's going to lose this, okay. right? 
I go, okay, what's your topic? She goes, I'm an evangelical Christian. I don't believe in abortion for any reason. I want it illegal and I want it gone tomorrow. And I know you don't agree. So I think for a second, I go, okay, let me, let me re-say what you just said a slightly different way. You would like to live in a country where no woman, no couple, no family ever feels they need to have an abortion. And given the choice, would really very rarely have ever opt to have an abortion. Is that fair? And she thought for a second, she said, yeah. I said, well, I want the same thing. And by the way, everyone I know who's pro-choice wants the same thing. I don't know anybody who's pro-choice who's pro-abortion. We don't sit around going, yay, another abortion. Right. We, I will tell you, it's always a tragedy. And I'll even tell you, there's always a death. I'll give it to you. I don't know if it's, you know, we want to call it a fully formed human being, but something that's alive died. That's a tragedy. Our side sometimes feels that having that birth could add to that tragedy. But neither here nor there, we want abortion to be practically a ghost. I don't think we get there by making it illegal. Mm. That's your solution. It was illegal. We had a lot of dead babies. We had a lot mm. of dead women. I think we get there through family counseling and healthcare and education and empowering of women. I think there's all kinds of things we could do that would get us as close as possible to zero abortions. I don't think making it illegal is one of them. And she looked at me and she thought, she took out 20 bucks and she gave it to the Obama people. That is a scenario that I have repeated time after time after time in different conversations with avowed conservatives in red states and purple states. And I find that the end results of what we want are not that different from each other. Where we really divide is on how we think we might get mm. there. So my thesis becomes if that's true, that kind of the end result is something we share a desire for, why don't we vote for people that can advocate for what we want, but have the same conversation you and I just had and negotiate for something that serves you and serves me? Why are we voting for people that are pushing you and me further and further and further apart? And why are you willing to give your money to people who are making a fortune to push you and me further and further and further apart. So my appearance on Twitter, I try very, very hard, unlike some of my friends that we talked about, yeah. to not antagonize the other side. I don't. Tr I try not to use names. I don't. I don't name call. I notice that. And I, I don't belittle yeah. people. Yeah. What I really do is I I reiterate some information that's available and go, are you, are you seeing this? And I'm basically doing that more for the people on my side, so they have real talking points that they can use. And for anybody who might be, uh, you know, unresolved about all this to go, oh, uh, that's something to think about. Mm. It's not to say to the other side, you're an idiot. Right. Because I know that our conversation, if I was really talking to the other side, it's a much more nuanced conversation than, you know, retweeting a Ron Perlman. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Ron. But we we were, do. We were, uh, Ron, you are we, the we, bravest we, Jew in America. <laughs> We were we were talking earlier about uh, how Ron had joined us on the show. If you're listening, you haven't heard it, go back and listen to our wild conversation with Ron Perlman from Sons of Anarchy and Hellboy and everything else, <laughs> driving through Los Angeles talking about Trump's dick. Um, yeah. But he got banned on Twitter recently. He did. He did. 
Um, but I think pulling it back, what, what you, what you do and what Ron does, you're elevating issues, right? And, and there's, you, you touch on something important, Jason, you talk about, you're really talking about leadership yeah, and, and, and leadership, creating the time and the space to be thoughtful about real goals that we share, right? Which could be as simple as peace, right? Right. Absolutely. And, but, but in this environment right now that our leaders perpetuate, it is a quick hit. They, they want to see you fighting in the Waffle House or the diner in West Palm Beach, right? They want to see you shitting on each other on Twitter. It's got to happen in 30 seconds. It's not a thoughtful conversation yeah. like you and I are having here. This is why I like this format of, of media so much because you can have time to really expand on your thinking and people can better understand how you feel, how you think, and consider a different vantage point. But I think it, it, it allows for leadership to emerge. Right. And, and you are a very important leader in this country, if only because you're adding that positive tone, you're adding more light than heat. And that's what we well, need in this yes. environment right now. And, and sometimes it has to come with a joke, right? Sometimes yeah. it has to come with food and breaking bread, right? But when you were, I, I want to ask you, you guys did the show in New York for so many years and you lived in Wrong, New York. by the way. Wrong. Sorry. I'm sorry. We did Correct the show me. in LA. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Now About I, New York. Everybody, I, it was a great how, illusion. How did I not know that? I okay. know. Everybody, there are more people that I think we that. shot that thing in New York. Well, everybody kind of roams around looking for the sites, right? I know. But, yeah. but you did a show about New York, yes, right? Yes, we did. You, Absolutely. You lived in New York. So was Trump ever on the show? No. Was he ever around the show? Never. Did you ever meet him? No. In all your times, Roman, like in that time period where he was in New York, dating Marla Maples and all that kind of stuff, your paths I never, never crossed. Never crossed paths. I, I didn't even spot him across a room. I don't think we've been in the same room together. Wow, that's fascinating to me. And I, I'm curious if he's met Jerry or any of the other guy. He must have at some point, at some event I or would thing, right? He's at least been in a room. But did with you ever Jerry. think, knowing him, because you grew up in this media environment, did you ever think he could actually become president? No. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I, you know, I was not aware of, um, if you had asked me in my 20s and early 30s about Donald Trump, I'd go, well, I guess he's a New York success story. I mean, you know, his name is on all these buildings. I guess he's a successful guy, uh, you know, a little rough around the edges. I don't know much about him, but, you know, seems to be one of those guys, one of these multi-millionaires that did his real estate thing and was successful. It wasn't until really the last 10 years that the stories of what that success is actually built on that have started to come out and, and to see the kind of character that he's become. The other thing is, is that, you know, what a lot of people forget is the, <laughs> the darling of the conservative Tea Party-esque side of our politics was an avowed Democrat. Right. Uh, you know, he, these are not positions that he holds near and dear to his heart. He, he was actually quoted somewhere of saying, if I was ever going to run, get into politics, I would run. And I, this is him, not me. I would run as a Republican because there's so much stupider. That was what he said. Right. And, uh, you know, so he's the, the reason that you can't hold him to any of these positions. He, he doesn't believe what he's doing. Right. I don't think he cares. Ab Again, I'm trying not to antagonize. I've never, I've never met anybody like him. I don't understand him. I, the The worst thing I could say about anybody is they wouldn't, they wouldn't sacrifice themselves for their kids. I think that mm. is true of almost any mm. parent I've ever met. Mm. That you put a a, a a a medical condition on my kids. They need a they need the operation. They need my heart. 
I'm dead that day because my heart is going into my kids. 100%. I don't know that he would make that sacrifice. I don't think there is that level of concern in him for any other human being. I would much rather be wrong about that. Mm. I would really love to be wrong. But the person I've seen, based on the actions that I've seen, I, I can't imagine him being selfless to that degree. That's powerful. Again, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, you but know, I think it is powerful. Um, so we, uh, we, we just had on the show Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He's mm-hmm. the second candidate that we've had on the show. I hope we have them all. Um, I, of course, invite Trump to join us as well if he wants to dial in from Malta or wherever he might be in the right. next couple of, of months. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But, um, but we did have Mayor Pete on. We've had Tulsi Gabbard on. We hope to have others. Um, what's your analysis of the field? As someone who is influential and has a very, very powerful voice, what's your analysis of the field? And, and what would your counsel be as someone who does know this country and know the media and know entertainment and the intersection of all of them? Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's your analysis of the landscape? So what's really interesting to me about what's going on is it's the best and worst of, of what we're about right now. In as much as the Republican Party is a party in search for its soul, so are the Democrats. Mm-hmm. The reason the Tea Party and Trump and this whole, you know, the Trump base has happened is because the Democrats got stupid and turned a blind eye on a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of realities. And those people felt marginalized and alienated and forgotten. And, you know, people don't curl up and die when that happens. They get angry and they fight back. And and what we're getting now is, is that fight. Um, so our party is looking for its new center. It's looking for what is the 21st century, the true 21st century direction of the Democratic Party. Is it a sort of democratic socialism um, as expressed by Bernie and by Elizabeth Warren and even to some degree by uh, Julian Castro and, and Cory Booker? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or is there, is it more a, which by the way would be turning the Titanic 180 degrees in about nine seconds. That is a very fast turn for a very large ship. And then there is the more moderate part of our party that's going, we, if you turn it that fast, you'll break the ship in half and you'll, it'll sink. So in order to take conservatives or independents or undecided moderates on a, and, and move them to one side of the line or the other, we need to do so incrementally, and that's being represented by Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Michael Bennett and you know a, a couple other people who are out in the red. Bloomberg, I'm sure, to some degree. Um, and it's a worthwhile discussion and exploration to have. What it doesn't do is inspire voters. <laughs> right, right, um, right. While they're having that discussion and that argument, the voters are going, what the fuck are you guys going to do? Just make up your goddamn minds. <laughs> exactly. Tell us where you want to go, and we'll decide if we're with you. It, it is not a comfortable situation for the average um, uh, progressive or, or Democrat. But I, 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 for one, believe it's a, a healthy process. My other fear is that no matter which side of, the, of that equation prevails, I'm not sure that it is being represented by anybody that America as a whole would look to and say, I believe in that person 100%. Um, 
if I look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I see a limited picture of what I think a president needs. I think they're incredibly bright. I'm so, so, so smart um, and experienced. And, and they are coming from the most honest. I think they're two of the most honest politicians in this race about their heart and soul connected to what they're espousing. But I don't know what Bernie Sanders does in foreign policy. I don't know what Bernie Sanders does in law and order. I mm. only know what Bernie Sanders espouses as a sociopolitical movement. Same thing with Elizabeth Warren. Um, so I don't see a whole complete presidential picture there, which concerns me because I think these moderate independent voters are looking for that image. You don't see it in Trump. So can you see it in the person that's going to go up against him? I think potentially they could see it in Biden, but what's happening to Biden right now, and I don't think it's that it's a mental problem. I think there's a stress problem right now. I think he is, his heart is so burdened by what's being said about him and his family and the fact that he's gone through a tremendously hard time in the last four to five years. I, I think he's becoming inarticulate and emotional in ways that he wouldn't have been five years ago. Mm. And so he doesn't feel like he's got the strongest grip Right. Yeah. Now. It's also it looks like it's kind of overwhelming him. It does. Right? Like he's an old quarterback, you know, I don't know, like a, like maybe a, an Eli Manning type when Lamar Jackson is the new quarterback in the NFL. <laughs> right. I mean, the game is moving faster. It's changing all around you. Exactly. And you're holding the ball in the pocket too long yeah. and you're fumbling and it's, you know, you're, you're kind of shutting down. Right. And Clinton has talked a lot very powerfully about how many, especially of the older white male voters uh, that Trump was able to capture felt like the world was changing too fast. Right. It was spinning too fast. And they just wanted to grab the, the handle, say, slow it down, yeah. stop the change. I'm not ready for it. Absolutely. And, and he's kind of in that place where the media environment is, is, is wrapping him up. And he looks like he's kind of on the ropes all the time yeah. because he didn't know what the hell Snapchat was. And it just hit him from the, from the yeah. side. Right. He um, also looks, he looks hurt. He does. To me. He does. Well, he I looks look surprised. Like when, when, when yeah. Kamala Harris came at him, yeah. he really, and, and maybe, and that's, that's a bit of arrogance, maybe, maybe it's a bit of entitlement, right? This idea that like, you're really doing this, but it's also in my view, a bit of his appeal to maybe what you're talking about, which is, can we be strategic about this? Can we not have a family fight out in the open? Can we not shoot each other? On the stage, that's right? And, and, that, and that's what I see, yeah. and I've been challenging them all on. I challenged yeah. Mayor Pete on this. You know, can there be a Game of Thrones moment? Like, who's going to be Jon Snow? Can you actually get the tribes together? Or, And what I see is probably more likely mm -hmm. is they're not going to put their kids first. And they're going to take it all the way to the primary. Bernie's going to go down fighting. Mm -hmm. Tulsi's going to do her own thing. There'll be other holdouts. And, the, and most of the voters will be sitting here saying, get your shit together and pick a quarterback. Right. Pick a quarterback and let's hit the field and let's go. Yeah. Because I also argue, Jason, that every dollar they're spending against each other is a dollar they won't have for the fight against Trump. Absolutely. Right. It's finite resources. And you've only got so much ammunition. And every piece of ammunition you waste on friendly fire is one you don't have for the enemy. Yeah. And so I really do. I see that vacuum. Right. And it, I think we all, we all see it. Yeah, and I feel absolutely. like the American people are almost trying to fill it. But when that's all said and done, you know, you looked at both sides, you kind of set this stage of the progressive side or the moderate side, which I think is, is right. And what many of us see, which side are you, are you rooting for? Well, I will <laughs> tell you that 
The or what two, do you think is the best path? Well, well like, right? now the, this may be an indication goal, of, right? of my is, age. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm a 60-year-old guy. Yeah. Now. And, uh, you know, when, when the right comes at me and goes, ah, you're a lefty, elite, liberal, progressive asshole. And I go, you'd be surprised about some of my positions. Right. You'd be really surprised. I, I, and they don't know my voting record. I have voted for Republicans. I have voted for what would be considered conservative issues. Um, when I thought that that was the best idea or the best person at the time, I, my experience tells me that the kind of radical change that is, that the most progressive part of the party is pushing for is idealistically a very, very strong guiding light. But I think that the tempo at which they would like to execute it is fraught with dangers because you have to bring, I'm tired of policies that leave half the country behind. Mm. Um, So to me, this idea of nudging the ship 10 degrees at a time, rather than cranking the wheel and turning it 180 feels more uh, responsible and it feels more practical and it feels more accomplishable to me. Mm. So I tend to get more excited by two candidates that you hear nothing about, which are Amy Klobuchar Mm. and Michael Bennett. Mm. And I get excited by, although I'm not sure it's his time, but I really do get excited by Pete Buttigieg. Um, I wish he had more experience. I wish South Bend was this extraordinary success story that he could go, look. Right. Um, but he hasn't made the case for what he's, he articulates so masterfully. But then look at what the accomplishments are, and they aren't as masterful as the articulation. Right. So I feel like which is, is which is kind of Democrats in a nutshell, right? Absolutely. Like that's been a generation we of Democrats. talk a great talk. Big promises and suck at the execution, right? Absolutely. I always use the VA as an example, right? Yes. Obama came in just like every president said, "I'm going to clean up the VA." He left, and the VA is a fucking mess. Yeah. And Absolutely. and you know, execution in government and in politics is where good ideas go to die, right? Absolutely. Obama w- was was aspirational, but he also had a hell of a ground game, yep. right? And he was able to build a coalition and he was able to score points yeah. in places that mattered like talk, you know, talk radio or on in the entertainment world and yeah. cobble that together. So it feels like all of them are trying to piece it together, but just not completing the puzzle, yeah. right? And and so would, would you, Jason, will you endorse a candidate? Will you pick one at the I, end of I, all of this? You know, I might when the field gets closer and there's really something to talk about. Yeah. The truth is I would vote for this bottle of water for <laughs> Donald Trump. So whoever the candidate is, yes. and I mean this sincerely, if it's Liz Warren, Andrew Yang, yeah. uh, Bloomberg, uh, or this bottle of water, yeah. I- I'm going that direction <laughs> because it, the opposite is untenable for yeah. me. I, I worry, I really worry that former years of Trump unchecked, unchecked by the impeachment process, Yeah unchecked by the revelation of all his criminal exploit and unchecked by wanting to get a second term unleashed. I can't imagine the tragedies. I I just can't imagine it. Uh, And I don't want to imagine it. Um, Would you, would you ever run for office? I don't think so. But you're not not ruling it out. (laughs) Uh, I don't rule out anything, but, uh, but I, I can't imagine for a number of reasons. Could you go home and run for governor of New Jersey? 
No. <laughs> Here's the reason why. There are many reasons why. Yeah. I really do believe that politics, um, you know, there are a lot of people that act for a living, but a very small percentage of them have actually trained and have skills to bring to the table. They do it, but they don't know what they're doing. And they can still be successful until you give them something that they can't handle. And then they go, I don't really know what I'm doing. I feel the same way about politics. There are skills that I think are, are important if you're going to be a governing, if you're going to add to leadership. They are business experience. They are um, law and congressional knowledge. They are military service. They are having done this kind of governing at a smaller level. There's all kind of economics. There's all things that I know zippity doo da about. My skill is as a communicator. I can talk to people and I generally have been able to talk to people in a way that brings them closer together. That's a great skill. But I want to challenge you on that. Yeah. That might be the skill we need most right now. It might. Right? In this, but in, it in this means environment, that policy yeah. would really be dependent on everybody else telling me what should happen. Well, or, or, or advising you, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's yeah. where I think, you know, and I challenge you on this because I think, you know, we need more people in, in government. And I think too often people say government is, I've been close enough to it to see that most of them don't have all that shit. And most of them are not that good. I mean, we've yeah. seen that in the impeachment hearings that now welcome to how shitty members of Congress actually are, right. right? Many of them are not impressive. Many of them don't have lots of skill sets. Many of them don't have all the experience that everyone thinks. And then you've got Trump who had, you know, none of that. Right. And granted, <clears throat> it has created problems. He doesn't yeah. know how to run certain things and operate certain protocols. But I think there's a moment in time where we need patriots and, and you're doing so much already that I think if Democrats were smart, they would literally look across the spectrum and say, who could we run? Who are the, let's run Springsteen and let's run and let's run and yeah. let's run Jason Alexander, yeah. right? And look across and, and, you know, run them in Kentucky and run them in California, right? I mean, that's what Trump has kind of created is, is this, 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 um, this combination of celebrity and politician and sure. activism in this new thing right now, AOC is a celebrity. You bet. I mean, and, 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 and Rachel, and Rachel Maddow and we, you know, yep. Sean Hannity, like we could bring it around. There's this emergence and, and almost a celebration in this country that I think Trump was ahead of yeah. recognizing. Sure. So I will tell you not as a New Jersey resident, but as a neighbor, you know, I, I, I hope you do run. And I think if a president was smart, they'd find a way to have you involved because well, the mastery right, of communication and the way you do it is maybe what he sucks the most at and what we need the most right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I would have, you, you, I would have crazy issues if I were to ever run. Like literally, this is two of them right yeah, off the bat. Yeah. Okay. One of them you don't know about, but the other one you, you're not taking into consideration. Okay. The one you maybe wouldn't th have thought of is Jason Alexander is not my real name. I know it's that. It's a stage name. Yeah. So do I run as Jason Alexander, this bullshit name I made up for show business, or do I run as J. Scott Greenspan? And if I do, I have to spend a lot of time telling that story. Ask, and ask, then, but ask Barry Obama. Number two. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, 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 sure. that's a, but that's I have a to tactical undo problem. A lot. And the that's other problem, problem is, and truthfully, this happens every day. People don't know me. They know George. And if you tell them George Costanza is running for office, you got to get past that joke. You got to get past that impression. Well, uh, with all due respect, you know, Al Franken got past it. Yes, Donald Trump got past he it. Did. You know, lots but of other Al, people have gotten past Al, it. It, 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 it 
He wasn't as defined by him. one character Correct. in the same way you are. Yeah, but it right. was you That's know right. everything he's ever said as a comedian yeah, yeah. they used. But this is what I'm excited about him. is seeing people, especially in, in a format like this, people are now hearing the the real you, not George Costanza. Right. right? You're probably sick of saying, "Hey, what would George hear and what would George Costanza vote for? What would right. he think?" Like that's not you. Sure. And and you are many much more than that. I mean. I'm excited to see you especially and other people that I've been honored to know and see who have so much life experience be pulled in by this moment. Yeah. And, and that I think is inspiring and really important. And, and I think will inspire a whole new generation of actors and politicians to think about things differently. You, you mentioned the yeah, bottle yeah. of water. I have to ask you because yeah. it is angry Americans. We're in a, we're, we're at Matador. Uh, so big shout out to Matador. Thank you for hosting us here today. They had something going on at the car club. We're in this, um, it's a, it's a music room. Like it's a recording studio basically. And over your shoulder, there are record covers of Pearl Jam, Snoop Dogg, Pink Madonna. Florida. Yeah. Lou Reed is some cool shit. Um, But we did not start the show by asking you what your adult beverage of choice is. Yeah. And so what is your adult beverage of choice? I I don't have, I'm not an adult. You are definitely. I am a real teetotaler. Um, And it not through any, uh, it's not a religious thing. (laughs) It's just, I think what it was, honestly, is uh, my my mom was in the healthcare world. She was a, a nurse and a nurse educator. And when I was about 14 years old, around the time if you were going to start drinking, that would be the time when your buddies start getting a hold of some beers and stuff. So I've had asthma from the time I was a teenager. And there was a girl in New Jersey, and if you're a good New Jersey boy, you may remember this name. Her name was Karen Ann Quinlan. And Karen Ann Quinlan was a young teenage girl, asthmatic, who one night went out and got drunk and went into a coma from which she never recovered and wow. died. And my mother went, I hope you read that story. <laughs> and I think in the back of my head, I had some image that if I put alcohol to my lips, I would be the next Karen Ann Quinlan. So my drinking record, in college, I learned to enjoy a beer with certain food. Like I had, I had Mexican food and somebody said, this is called Corona. This is called Dos Equis. You should taste this. And I went, wow, these things right. go great together. Right. But I have never been drunk. I have never been high. Wow. And, and that may point to the control freak in me. I don't love the taste of most things that people consider really good, like good dry wines, fine wines. I go, oh, alcohol. Right. I like the fruitier stuff, which is loaded with sugar. And my girlish figure does not need more <laughs> calories. So I just never quite went down that road. So if you see me at a party and you look at the glass in my hand and it's got some color in it, it's probably a cranberry and soda. It's just nothing else. I, I, I'm not anti-drinking. I, I, We'll have an occasional glass of something, but if I have alcohol once every month to a month and a half, it's probably a big deal. I'm so glad I asked that. That must have been difficult in entertainment for 30 years. Not at all. Really? Yeah, not That's at all. A, again, I guess it's a testament I'll tell to your you focus. It was tricky. So I do, um, I'm about to go do my fourth tour of Australia. I love touring. Ah. Uh, I do some form of comedy, some form of stand up in Australia. And um, the, I love the Australians, and they're the friendliest, nicest people in the world, and they are gigantic. Gigantic Seinfeld fans. Half of my fan mail to this day comes from Australia. Really? So you get down there and they recognize you and they go, hey, mate. Oh, I love you. You're a champion, mate. I'm going to buy you a pint. Go buy you a pint. And I, and I would say, oh, that's really sweet of you, but I, I really don't drink. And to them, it was like saying, I don't want to drink with you. And that's like, an, it's an oh, insult. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Fine. Yeah. 
And I went, no. And then I would backpedal and go, so I've learned to say, only in Australia, I learned to say, oh, thanks. You know, um, I used to have a problem. They go, oh, gotcha. Gotcha, mate. No problem. Diet Coke for you. So in Australia, I'm a reformed alcoholic, but everywhere else, I just don't drink. Every question I ask you, I'm so glad I asked you, no matter where, where it goes. But I, I want to ask you the, 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 the last question that I ask of every guest on sure. the show. Um, you bring so much positivity. And I, again, the limited time we've been together in person, but from afar and in all your work, and especially today, like I think this is, this is going to drop, uh, this show will drop uh, in advance of Christmas uh-huh. and Hanukkah, which are overlapping right. this year, and I believe, festivals. right? And Festivus. Sure. Um, so I, I have to ask you for your thoughts on Festivus or any Festivus wishes. But before I do, it's a time of happiness. Sure. Jason Alexander, what makes you happy? Oh, I'm going to be so sappy right now. Really sappy. So, you know, my life is so stupidly blessed. It's it's disproportionate, honestly. Honestly. <laughs> um, but... You know, we've had health issues in my family. We've had career issues. We've had all kinds of things, you know, we've had to work through. And people who knew me well would go, how you doing? How you doing? And the honest answer is the following, and it remains true to this day. Around midnight, every night, I get into a bed. I have a bed. And I have a really cool house. And I have a woman that I've been married to for almost 40 years lying next to me. And she's healthy and she loves me. And my two boys are in that same house and they're in beds and they are healthy and they are secure and they have the hope that tomorrow might be as good or better than today. And I go, it was a great fucking day. I don't need anything else. You give me that every day of my life. I don't need another job. I don't need another person coming up and go, I love your work. I don't need any other accolades, challenges. You don't have to give me another red cent. If I can go to bed every night and go, I feel pretty good. I'm in a good place with someone who loves me next to me. And my family and the people I care about are healthy and happy and safe tonight. That was a great day. Hmm. I think that's the perfect holiday message. Yeah. It, it, it no matter is. what your holiday is. Yeah. Um, any... Uh, I'm going to take a, a, la- a last question on you. I mean, any any question, any thoughts on parenting with all this perspective? Oh, okay. You're somebody who does care deeply about family. Yeah. And, and I've tried to make that a pillar of this show, um, especially, you know, raising kids in, in this environment. It's a chaotic environment. And, and we have to look to mentors um, as parents, as children, as Americans. And I think you, you have been that for me from afar. And I think oh, folks thanks. listening to this will now understand better why. But any any lessons learned on many parenting? Um, that you I can will tell share? you two great books. Please. If you're raising kids, th- they were great. Uh, there's uh, two books written by the same two women. Um, one is called "How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk," and the follow up that. And I wish I could remember these ladies' names. I just don't. They also wrote a book called "Siblings Without Rivalry," and they were very much Bibles for my wife and I uh, as we were raising the boys. But. Um, the thing that I would say is um, whatever you have to teach, truth speaks for itself. Truth doesn't come at the end of a spanking. It doesn't come by 
inflicting pain on somebody. That's not how you get them to understand who you are or what you believe in. Um, and it doesn't necessarily teach the lesson that something that they've engaged in could hurt them by hurting them. Mm. So I believe in communication with our kids, even at the, even when they are non-communicative. Um, and I also believe for the most part that yes, we are there to guide and to teach, but I can tell you having raised my two boys, they came into the world fully loaded. They were exactly who they are. Mm. I look back at them as infants and I go, Oh, absolutely. That's, mm. that's who they are. So my job is to nurture, to guide, to protect, and to love them unconditionally. Um, they are going to teach me as much as I'm going to teach them. And I think the greatest day my son and I had was when he was like six years old, my older son, Gabe. My wife made this terrible mistake of leaving us alone for a weekend. <laughs> me with a six-year-old. And he, he kind of got it. And he pushed my buttons all day long. He was the biggest little bitch he could possibly oh, be. Yeah. And around dinner time, I snapped and I'm like, God damn it, Gabe, you this and you that and you da 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 da. And I, and I really yelled. I was really yeah. angry. And, you know, got him ready for bed that night. I'm tucking him in and, you know, he, it was a big thing because I had never really gone off like that. And I got him into bed and I said, I owe you an apology. And his eyes went big and he went, what? Because he knew he had he knew he'd been a little monster all day. Yeah. I said, I owe you an apology. You are a young person. You're supposed to make mistakes. That's how you learn things. You try things out. You try things on. You push at me. You challenge me. That's your job. My job is not to treat you the way I did for doing it. My job is to be clear and supportive, mm. but not to treat you the way I did. And I screwed up today and I am really sorry. And I really love you. And I love you even when you're doing that stuff that <laughs> you did. And he kind of got it. Yeah. He really got it. Yeah. That to have your, your dad or your mom say, I make mistakes. I don't understand everything yeah. about this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just guessing. I'm yeah. taking my best guess. And, you know, I said to them when they were little, when you're in your 20s, We'll sit down and talk about how we did. And now we do. Oh, <laughs> we do. I, I look, They're 27 and 24. And, I, you know, and they go, yeah, you, you did good with that. You might have messed up. It's <laughs> like, yeah, I probably I'm did. So, I'm so grateful you shared that um, because I had an episode with my son in the last week. He's four. Yeah. And, um, you know, a four-year-old can push your buttons in ways that oh, are absolutely unique. They're geniuses. And he, he hits me in the nuts so many times yeah. and punches me in the face accidentally so many times. Yeah. And I wake up so often, I feel like, you know, I'm having some kind of like, maybe I was a boxer in a past life. <laughs> I just wake up to head blows that come from a foot or, an, or a, 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 a hand. Yeah. But I, I did, I raised my, my temper and I lost my voice with him. And interestingly, Jason, like I sat down with him that night. And I said, buddy, I'm, I'm sorry. I lost my cool. I shouldn't do that. You know, I'm, I apologize. Yeah. I want you to know that you have to own things. And, and I have always tried to treat him with respect, both my boys, no matter how old they are. Right. And, and he had this moment where he turned, he looked at me and he said, it's okay, daddy. And he goes, love dad, dad. And he had that moment where he looks at you and he doesn't look like a four-year-old. Yeah. 
and I felt yeah. like I was looking at the 27 year old version of him. Um, it's really true. And, and, yeah, those and they get are, it and they appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, um, I'm trying to remember the, the, the way to express it, but, they, but they, it, it's just, there was a, a, a parenting system that we studied when my kids were little and it worked great with my older one and, and it did not work at all with my younger one, but, but that was fine. But it was, um, a system in which you ask your child to make as many self-determining decisions every day as they possibly yeah. can. Yep. And even when they're like an infant on the changing table, yes. you're supposed to hold up two outfits. Yes. And go, this one's yes. blue and this one's yellow. Is there one you would like? Yes. And they don't know what they're doing, yes. but they'll focus their eyes for a second on the blue one. You go, I see you're looking at the blue one. I think that's what you would like. So that they feel like they have some say in their own work. Yes. And the system says that you get the terrible twos because they've made no decisions for themselves right. up to two. And now you're asking them to start making some decisions because yeah. they need to grow up a little bit and they freak out. Yeah. It, gives, it, gives <laughs> them, it gives them a sense of ownership over their own world. Yeah. And my son was lucky enough to go to a Montessori school and they taught me that about that the choices, yep, exactly. right? Make a choice. Which which shirt do you want to wear, buddy? Which shoes do you want to wear? Would you like to walk out of the room or would you like me to carry you, yeah. right? I mean, but empowering yeah. them, I think is an important lesson for life. And yeah. you have given us so many lessons for life. Uh, this you, conversation has thank been- Thank you for doing this. You're, you're, listen, I have always, from the day we met, I admired the hell out of you. You were, um, to me, you looked like, what a leader is supposed to look like. You, first of all, you embodied it. Second of all, the mission that you were working on was extraordinary. And the way you, ex the way you talked about it and espoused it was extraordinary. And the fact that you've stayed engaged in this work and are still leading in this field is, is extraordinary. And you're a young guy with, as you said, four under four, and oh. I hope they all become gigantically successful adults. Well, I'm, I, I'm so grateful for that. And for you, and I have a giving of the gifts. Oh, you, you may not know this, but this is it's uh, in a righteous media. It, bag it's in a righteous together. media bag. Um, wow! And, and since it is Festivus wow. and everything else, so I'm going to go in order. So right. there is an order. There's no okay. feats of strength or the other things that are a part. Do <laughs> you? God, I would. I would be. Do you remember them uh, like by heart? Like all the parts of Festivus? Do you have to? I remember the feats of strength, the airing of grievances, right. the, the Festivus pole. Festivus do you pole. know Festivus? Do you know how that came about? I, I read about it, but I don't that know. That was a true, truth. one of our writers, and I'm, yes. I, I'm not going to remember his name because I'm old. Um, one of our writers, that was this thing his father made up and it was a family tradition and he must have been in the writer's room talking about this crazy thing and Larry and Jerry must have gone, that is a Frank Costanza right there. And it, it just became the Festivus miracle episode. And so, now it's... But it was all those things. It was the feats of strength, the airing of grievances, the Festivus yes. poll because he didn't want a Christmas tree. Right. And <laughs> and now it's it's like people legitimately celebrate this. It's all this. over the all world. All over the world. And Ben and Jerry's made a flavor, Festivus yes. for the rest of us. And, and this episode will drop... Uh, in time for festivals. God bless. So, and here is a part of the giving of the gifts. So the first is we've got some American made oh, swag yeah. for you that, oh, uh, yeah. that you can rock in New Jersey or oh, California, wherever you are, America. made by our friends yeah. at Oscar Mike. Uh, and then this is, this is one you, I think will appreciate. Yeah. So every episode, because we started at Easter, um, we started doing <laughs> a question of peeps. The marshmallow peeps, so ladies there, and gentlemen. There are three colors. I can't even wrap my hand around Pink, all this. blue, and yellow. As only there should be. Jason Alexander, which color of peeps would you choose? I'm a why? yellow peep guy. Why? By the way, I always have been. Why? I don't know, because it looks the most like food. There is no pink or blue food. There are yellow foods. 
Someone else said that. I yeah. think it might have been like like uh, Colicchio or someone. We asked them about that, and they said that there's nothing in nature that is like blue. <laughs> nothing we eat. No, nothing that. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's why the fast and food Carlin restaurants used to are do red. the thing about what about blueberries? And go, no, they're purple. Fuck right, you. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, but so. yeah, yellow is the most popular yeah. choice. Yeah, yellow peeps, of yes. course. Okay, good. That was Beautiful. also Pete Buttigieg's choice. See, he had a very Pete Buttigieg right. answer. If folks haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. Okay. I mean, stay around for the end because the Pete Buttigieg Peeps answer is always, the Peeps question is always worth sticking around sure. for. And then lastly, you don't drink, but each time I go to the same liquor oh. store, and it feels like a Seinfeld oh. episode every time I walk in. They're like, what does this big dude want now? He's going to buy another bottle of whiskey. And I stand there and I look at it. Maybe we can videotape it. But I look to the shelf in a, in a uniquely robust New York liquor store and I say, what will appeal to this guest and what speaks to me? And I knew you were from New Jersey. I didn't know that you didn't drink, but- it was a Hudson. I drink. I yes. just don't drink often. Yes, to thank excess. you. I, yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. So uh, the the Hudson New York corn whiskey. Yes. And I also picked it, quite frankly, because it's a powerful, sturdy bottle. Jesus Christ. And you are a powerful, sturdy man. <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of looks like moonshine. And, and it's, it's, it is, for, by the way, 46% alcohol yeah, per it, volume. It packs a punch. Yes. And it has lots of surprises, which you do as well. So I thought, please enjoy that on Festivus. <laughs> and I, okay, Thank you, brother. There was one other piece. Of, uh, you know, did you shoot, you shot a Nickelback video? I did. Did you shoot the Nickelback video before or after they were single-handedly the only ones that have been successful in having Twitter remove a, a Trump tweet? I, I, that's not right. A, right. Yeah. So, it was long before long that. Long before, but right? I had no idea the level of vitriol that Nickelback somehow inspires in some people. I got more hate mail <laughs> for that innocuous little video. It was great. It's such a lovely I've video. It's like such a beautiful video. It was a sweet song. You play a barista and then yeah. you play an evil barista. And, and I had Brooke Burns staring at which I come on. comes rolling in. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't, I was not particularly aware of Nickelback one way or the other. They asked me and I heard the song. And that was beautiful. Nickelback is like the <clears throat> Tulsi Gabbard of bands. Yeah. Like inspires, you know, tremendous uh, allegiance among the people <laughs> who love them and vitriol and hate and confusion about yes, others. Sir. Tulsi Gabbard at her best is kind of, for some people, a superhero, like yeah. a Marvel character. And at her worst, she's a Bond villain. Yeah. Right. And Nickelback. It's the silver streak. I'm is pretty that what sure. it is? Yeah. It has that Cruella DeVille thing. But, and that's why she gets the, she gets the bad rap on uh, that. Did you ever go on stage with Nickelback? No, no, I've never been on stage with them. They were not part of the video. But they, they were very, they were the only ones who ever got a Trump, Trump tweet yeah, removed right? by, by, by tackling him on the IP, and they yeah, got him. That's right, so I had to bring God. that up. Yeah. But um, this conversation has been a tremendous gift to Thank all you, of our friend. listeners. I know they appreciate it. You're a great patriot, Jason. Ah, oh, bless in, you. In the, in the truest sense. Thank you. And I'm so grateful for all that you've done for this country and for the world. Right you have been you. an ambassador for our country. And somewhere to know that your work and your words are circulating around the world to counter so much of the other negative shit that's coming out of this country, I think is, is a, is a, is a solace to us. Uh, um, but this conversation and all your work is a tremendous gift. Folks should follow you on Twitter and in everything else you're doing, but we wish you the very best of happy holidays. Right back at you. And I'll end with the great words of my father, Frank Costanza, serenity now. <laughs> Serenity now, indeed. The amazing Jason Thanks, Alexander has been with us. Thank you for tuning in. I'm packing in. up my bag. He's packing <laughs> up his bag. Live from New York at Matador. Powered, Powered. by Righteous Media.